This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh, we're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet. Take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 2010, thousands of people gathered along the road leading to St. John the Baptist Cathedral in Turin, Italy. They cheered as the Pope-mobile rolled slowly past. Pope Benedict XIV was inside, on his way to pray before the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin is a large, ancient piece of linen bearing the faint, sepia-toned image of a crucified man. Many believe that man was Jesus Christ and that the Shroud of Turin was covering him when he was entombed and resurrected. Pope Benedict knelt before the shroud in prayer, and then, as if emerging from a trance, he stood and addressed the pilgrims gathered in the cathedral. He said, This is a burial cloth that wrapped the remains of a crucified man in full correspondence with what the Gospels tell us of Jesus. The Pope went on to say that the shroud should be seen as a photographic document of the darkest mystery of faith. The dark mystery Pope Benedict is referring to is Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Despite the Pope's words, the Catholic Church has never definitively declared that the Shroud of Turin is genuine. But in 2015, scientific evidence emerged that could confirm Pope Benedict's pronouncement. Perhaps Jesus' resurrection caused a chemical process that resulted in a photograph of Jesus' body to be imprinted on the shroud. Science may be able to help us better understand the gap between faith and reality. 
But to this day, no experiment has been able to prove how the shroud first became imprinted. Could it truly be hard evidence of the resurrection? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin has been enveloped in mystery since the moment of its alleged creation during Jesus' resurrection. This week, we'll unpack the mystery of the Shroud's origins and examine the question of the Shroud's authenticity. Some believe that the relic is the actual burial shroud of Jesus Christ. Others believe it's a medieval forgery. First, we'll look at all the ways the Shroud was historically questioned and authenticated before the advent of modern science. Although advanced technology was not yet available, early scholars were able to reach some interesting conclusions about the Shroud that are still cited today. Second, we'll dive into the late 19th century to see how Secondo Pia's 1898 photographs changed the way believers and skeptics alike viewed the shroud. The photographic negatives revealed that the shroud contained a much more detailed image that couldn't be seen by the naked eye. These negatives opened up new possibilities for understanding the shroud and how it was created, and greatly influenced the work of biologist Paul Vignon and surgeon Pierre Barbet. Finally, we'll move into the 21st century and look at what has been learned about the shroud with the proper scientific study. In 1973, scientists were finally granted full access to the relic and allowed to perform tests on it directly. That initial study birthed the Shroud of Turin Research Project, an international group of scientists that came together to better understand the Shroud. Further studies of the Shroud are ongoing as we speak. Depending on what research you read, science has either proven the Shroud's legitimacy or it has proven the Shroud is fake. And then there are some who believe the Shroud's authenticity cannot be proven because it was miraculously formed and is therefore beyond the reaches of science. The most cited records of Jesus' resurrection are the Gospels of the New Testament written by Jesus' disciples Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We began part one with the resurrection story as told in the Gospel of John. Mary Magdalene went to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body, 
but found an angel in his tomb instead. The angel told Mary that Jesus had been resurrected. But the Gospels don't agree on what kind of cloth was used to cover Jesus' body after his death. Matthew and Mark don't mention a burial shroud in the tomb at all. And Luke mentions strips of linen, not an entire burial shroud. These inconsistencies have been cited by skeptics as evidence that the shroud is a hoax. If the shroud is such a miraculous and powerful artifact, why wouldn't all the Gospels mention it? In the 16th century, French theologian John Calvin cited this disagreement among the Gospels in his conclusion that the Shroud of Turin is a fake. In 1543, Calvin wrote in his book, Treatise on Relics, How is it possible that those sacred historians who carefully related all the miracles that took place at Christ's death should have omitted to mention one so remarkable as the likeness of the body of our Lord remaining on its wrapping sheet? However, the Gospels disagree on several other important details of the resurrection story. John's Gospel states that Mary Magdalene went to attend Jesus' body alone, while the other three say she was in a group. Matthew and John both mention a violent earthquake on the day of Jesus' resurrection, but that element is missing entirely from Luke and Mark's Gospels. Clearly, the biblical record of Jesus' resurrection cannot give us a conclusive answer on where the Shroud of Turin came from. There's another piece of evidence from very early in the Shroud's history that's worth discussing. It comes from the Shroud's time with Byzantine Emperor Romanus Lecapenus between 944 and 1204 CE. Last week, we told the story of how Emperor Lecapenus bargained with the city of Edessa to bring the Shroud to Constantinople, believing that the Shroud's presence would protect his city from invasion. The Shroud was displayed in the Hagia Sophia Cathedral soon after its arrival in Constantinople in 944. Archdeacon Gregory, the top cleric at that cathedral, delivered a sermon to the congregation. Gregory said that the image on the shroud was impressed during the agony only by the drops of sweat that poured forth from the face, which is the source of life. These are really the beauties which have produced the coloration of the imprint of Christ, which was further embellished by the drops of blood that issued of his own side. Gregory was impressing the importance of Christ's suffering upon his flock, but he was also inadvertently generating a record of the relic housed in his cathedral. Particularly compelling is the detail about the color of the image, a specific rusty sepia tone that looks consistent with dried blood to the naked eye. In addition, the mention of blood on the side of the body is significant because that detail is specific to Jesus' crucifixion. Even if this evidence doesn't prove that the shroud is real, it does suggest that a cloth very similar to the Shroud of Turin today existed over a thousand years ago in Constantinople. However, even if the Shroud in St. John the Baptist Cathedral today was in Constantinople in 944 CE, we still don't know if that same piece of linen actually covered Jesus in the tomb. Despite this evidence, some still believe that the cloth Emperor Lecapenus brought to Constantinople was not the Shroud of Turin. 
The main point of contention is that the shroud displays an image of a man with closed eyes, presumably dead, while some artistic reproductions of the cloth in Constantinople depict a man's face with the eyes open. However, this discrepancy could have been the result of early Christians' aversion to illustrating a dead Christ. Accurate representations of Jesus' crucifixion and death wouldn't become normalized for another 300 years. Another piece of medieval evidence often cited against the authenticity of the shroud is the indignant letter written by the Bishop of Troyes in 1389. Last week, we told the story of how the bishop first tried to have the shroud removed from the de Charny family's chapel in Lyre, France. When that effort failed, he wrote a disgruntled letter to Pope Clement VII, reporting that the shroud was a fraud. The bishop argued that the shroud was an artist's work, paid for by the de Charnay family. The piece of cloth had been commissioned to dupe faithful pilgrims into giving money to de Charny's church. The bishop claimed his predecessor investigated the matter further and had supposedly located the artist who created the cloth. Unfortunately, there is no record that the bishop's claims were ever followed up on, and the identity of this accused forger has been lost to history. As you may remember from part one, Pope Clement didn't place much stock in the bishop's accusations and advised that he stop attacking Our Lady of Lyre Chapel and the Shroud or face excommunication. The Bishop of Troyes' letter is the first piece of historical writing claiming the shroud is forged, and it has been cited by skeptics for centuries. But there were plenty of reasons for the bishop to fabricate this accusation. His own church, only 12 miles from Lyre, was being upstaged by the shroud's popularity with pilgrims, and it makes sense that the bishop would be jealous. The bishop also probably felt slighted by the de Charny family, who had gone above his head to Cardinal Pierre de Torre to obtain permission to display the shroud. The shroud changed hands again in 1464, when the Savoy family gave the shroud a permanent residence in Chambury Castle in 1502. They were anxious to reinforce the perception of the shroud's authenticity. If they could authenticate it, then more people would come to Chambury Castle. A Savoy courtier named Antoine de la Lange was present on Good Friday, 1503, and saw the shroud. He wrote in his journal, The shroud is, I believe, the most devotional and contemplative thing on earth. The shroud is soaked with the precious blood of Jesus, our Savior, and one sees that still very clearly, despite that the shroud has been soiled. He went on to say that the shroud's fidelity had been verified with a variety of tests, including boiling the shroud in oil and cleaning it. Amazingly, the image on the shroud was not altered or removed as a result of any of these tests. It appears this was sufficient for pilgrims to continue to believe, and for centuries they continued to flock to Chambury to view the shroud whenever it was displayed. To our modern eyes, however, Antoine de Lalang's account isn't totally airtight. There is no other record of the tests performed by the Savoys, and obviously the validity of these 15th century tests is questionable at best. Antoine de Lalang was a Catholic, 
and therefore inclined to lean into the shroud's authenticity. His closeness to the Savoy family also indicates the strong possibility of bias. Proving the shroud's authenticity seemed impossible for the first two millennia of its existence. There were believers and skeptics, and there was no credible evidence to make a skeptic into a believer or vice versa. None of the tests performed on the shroud so far were backed by the scientific method. For example, the Savoys claimed to have cleaned the shroud, and this did nothing to the image. But they did not record the details of the washing, so the process could not be repeated or tested. Whether they actually did clean the shroud or not, without a proper record and transparency, any proof the cleaning provided has to be downgraded to inadmissible. The most powerful indicator of the Shroud's authenticity was the Catholic Church's approval of Pilgrim's veneration of it. The Catholic Church was a force at the time, but the opinion of this institution was not based in science. The only way to really know whether the Shroud of Turin is the burial shroud of Jesus is to use tests that can be repeated to show the same results. Next, we'll discuss how scientific advancements over the past century have led to new theories and an understanding of the Shroud. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now back to our unexplained mystery. For the first 2,000 years of its alleged life, the Shroud of Turin's authenticity was solely based on its holder's claims, with no real evidence to back anything up. But at the end of the 19th century science had finally matured to a point where it could be used to uncover new information about the Shroud. Last week, we discussed the story of Secondo Pia's stunning 1898 photographic negatives, which revealed that the image on the Shroud is itself a negative. Secondo Pia's negatives made the positive, more distinct image hidden in the Shroud visible for the first time. Secondo Pia's discovery was an absolute revelation. Pia reportedly told a friend that when he saw the image emerging as the glass plate developed in the chemical bath, he felt the need to jump because he was so filled with emotion and happiness. The reaction from the rest of the world was similarly intense. The London Daily Telegraph tantalizingly reported a marvelous event, which sent Pope Leo XIII, the local bishops, royalty, and anyone of consequence in the area surrounding Turin scurrying to Secondo Pia's studio to view the images. Once the Vatican newspaper, L'Osservatore Romano, upgraded the photographs to a miraculous event, the entire world began to hear about them. But not everyone could see these miraculous images. In 1898, photographs had to be physically sent. They couldn't be wired in a matter of minutes via telegraph the way text could. What's more, 
Pia's images weren't actually photographs. They were negatives printed on heavy and fragile glass. These images were not easy to reproduce. So many newspapers took shortcuts. They'd publish stories about Pia's findings alongside a variety of substitute images, like drawings of the negatives and even reproductions of historical paintings of the shroud. Sometimes these proxies were misrepresented as Pia's actual photographs. This greatly distorted the legitimacy of Pia's work. The reception of Pia's work was also affected by the novelty of photography itself. Photography was still a fresh technology in 1898, and the general public did not yet trust it as a credible source of evidence. Pia didn't release many technical details that made it easy for people to understand his process. The few details he did disclose were often misunderstood or incorrect. Author John Walsh characterized the 1898 coverage of the photographs in the New York Evening Journal as managing to include both enough untruth and distortion to cause hopeless confusion. All these elements combined to turn the foreign media against Secondopia within a matter of weeks. There was speculation that he'd altered the images using chemicals or wasn't being honest about the source of the images. Secondo Pia acknowledged the controversy in a letter to journalist Marquis Filippo Crispolti in 1899, less than a year after photographing the shroud. He wrote that the finding of a detailed portrait of Jesus through photography was wholly unexpected. Anyone unfamiliar with the chemical process of photography would naturally be skeptical. But Pia's magnanimous attitude wouldn't save his reputation. The truly disastrous blow to Secondo Pia and his negatives came from Father Ulysse Chevalier, a French scholar specializing in Christian relics. In 1900, Father Ulysse Chevalier declared the shroud a fake in an article with the headline, Critical Study on the Origins of the Holy Shroud of Lyre Chambery Turin. Father Ulysse Chevalier cited the Bishop of Troyes' 1389 letter to Pope Clement, writing that the shroud had been cunningly painted, the truth being attested by the artist who had painted it, to wit, that it was a work of human skill and not miraculously wrought or bestowed. Father Ulysse Chevalier failed to mention that Pope Clement did not agree with the Bishop of Troyes or that the bishop's argument was basically hearsay with no evidence to back it up. But the dissenting voice from a Christian cleric cemented the cynical opinions abroad. In 1907, nine years after photographing the shroud, Secondo Pio was still trying to rebuild his reputation. He defended himself in his memoir, writing, I never invented any new methods or utilized any tricks as some people have been inclined to believe. For decades, it seemed the specific details of Secondo Pia's process in 1898 had been so diluted and misconstrued by the media that it would be impossible to unearth the truth of them. But in 2010, there was a breakthrough. The letter Secondo Pia wrote to journalist Marquis Filippo Crispolti in 1899 was discovered in an archive. It included the technical specifics of his process in such detail that they could be repeated. 
It took over 110 years, but Secondo Pio was finally fully vindicated. Today, Secondo Pia's photographs are considered the first step in uncovering how the Shroud of Turin came to be. Although Secondo Pia's 1898 photographs don't themselves provide evidence of the Shroud's authenticity, they did signal the beginning of real research that could. If photographs could reveal a clear image of Christ's face, Perhaps there were other secrets hidden within the shroud that technology and science could uncover. In 1900, a biologist named Yves Delage was intrigued by the mystery of the Shroud of Turin. He discussed it with a younger biologist named Paul Vignon. Delage was agnostic and Vignon was a devout Catholic. But both men believed that there had to be a natural explanation for the shroud's existence. Delage was impressed with Vignon's curiosity and gave him a lab space to test his theories. In addition to being a biologist, Vignon was also a painter. His familiarity with that medium led him to the conclusion that the shroud couldn't have been forged by an artist. With no photography available in medieval times, Vignon wasn't convinced that any artist could have conceived of the idea of a negative image. The creation of the negative effect itself would have required the artist to paint without being able to see what he's doing, which would be a nearly impossible feat. In addition, there is no logical reason for an artist to create a negative image. An artist looking to rouse intense feelings of faith would want to showcase a recognizable face, someone that people would look at and see Christ. Why create a negative that no one could see and that wouldn't be visible for hundreds of years if the goal was to create a venerable sign of Jesus Christ's divinity? The most damning experiment against the forging theory was an attempt to recreate a forged shroud. When Vignon applied a variety of paints to cloths very similar to the shroud, the paint flaked off. The image on the shroud had remained constant. It seemed preposterous that ancient paint could have endured for so many centuries. Since Vignon felt sure that an artist couldn't have made the shroud, he took on the task of recreating it in other ways. He tried several different practical methods to generate a duplicate shroud of Turin. First, he applied a costume mustache to resemble the image on the shroud then covered his face in chalk dust and laid a cloth over it. The effect was nothing remarkable, just a series of splotches with no real detail. One of the inexplicable aspects of the shroud was that the bridge of the nose is imprinted, as are the hollows of the eyes. A cloth laid over a face wouldn't make contact with the hollows in the face and the bridge of the nose unless some pressure was applied. When chalk wasn't sufficient, Vignon speculated that the imprint could have been the result of a combination of sweat and traditional burial ointments like myrrh and aloe coming into contact with the burial linen. Vignon soaked a cloth with a mix of burial ointments from a Jewish recipe dating to the time of Jesus' death. Then he observed the effect that human sweat had on the cloth. When the ointments reacted with the ammonia in the sweat, 
it produced brown stains that looked very similar to the sepia tone of the image on the shroud. Close examination of Pia's photographs with a magnifying glass showed Vignon a curious detail about the blood on the shroud. It was not a reversible image like the face, suggesting that its presence on the shroud didn't come from the sweat and ointment combination. Vignon could also see in the magnified image that the blood appeared to be dried. He observed the separation between the serum and blood cell, the actual behavior of dried blood. But here's what's curious. The shroud seemed to have the image of dried blood on it, not the actual blood itself. Although Vignon could not account for how the image of dried blood had appeared on the shroud, as a biologist, he did feel confident in his belief that the blood was real. Vignon had found the natural explanation he was looking for and evidence that the shroud came from a real human person. But that didn't answer the question of whether the shroud was really the burial shroud of Jesus Christ. The details of Jesus' crucifixion are well recorded in the Bible. Believers cite the exact match of wounds visible on the shroud and Jesus' wounds in the Bible as evidence of the shroud's legitimacy. But Vignon knew that the shroud could have been forged by mutilating someone else in the same way Jesus had been mutilated. Perhaps some innocent person had suffered and died so that the shroud could be made. Vignon was not able to generate airtight proof of the shroud's authenticity. But his research did convince his agnostic colleague, Yves Dulage, that the shroud was bona fide. In 1902, Dulage presented a very controversial paper to the highest scientific authority in France, the French Academy. Dulage asserted that the shroud was real and had been generated by a human body. His paper sent a shockwave through the scientific community. Although Delage was agnostic, the French Academy balked at any mention of religion. Delage was almost denied the opportunity to present his and Vignon's research purely because he included the word Christ in the title of his paper. But he appealed and was granted an audience. The day he made his presentation, a reporter wrote that the hall had only been fuller the day Louis Pasteur presented his rabies vaccine. Dulage thought his colleagues at the Academy would be grateful to hear that there was a natural explanation for the so-called miracle of the shroud. But his presentation was contentious. Many members felt that Dulage should not have been allowed to present at all. Traditionally, when a presentation at the French Academy concludes, the members present vote on the credibility and quality of the research. The Academy didn't even allow for a vote on Delage's presentation. The establishment felt that Delage's focus on Jesus was too far outside the scientific tradition. The press followed suit, and Delage's reputation as a scientist never recovered. Yves Dulage, Secondo Pia, and Paul Vignon were all faced with damaging challenges to their conclusions about the Shroud. But all three would see their ideas corroborated, though it took a few decades. In 1931, the Shroud was displayed to celebrate the marriage of the last king of Italy, Crown Prince Umberto to Marie-José of Belgium. 
This time, Giuseppe Henriet, a local portrait photographer, was enlisted to photograph the shroud. To avoid accusations of forgery or tampering, Giuseppe Henriet's session was witnessed by scientists at the French Academy and Secundo Pia himself, now in his 70s. Henriet recorded every technical detail and published them in 1933. Photography had improved by leaps and bounds by then, and the images were far superior to those taken by Secondo Pia in 1898. And curiously, the negatives produced the same detailed image as Secondo Pia's negatives. Finally, there was proof that Secondo Pia's images had not been doctored or artificially manufactured. In addition, in Henriet's new photographs, the cloth was also examined more thoroughly, and paint was finally ruled out as a method of forgery. The stains were not soaked into the cloth the way paint would behave, and examination of the cloth under a microscope showed no evidence of paint fragments. Vignon had been right, too. Vignon studied the shroud for the rest of his life. In 1933, Vignon was one of a select few scientists granted access to the shroud for several hours of direct examination. He followed up that study with deep research into archaeology and art history and published a book in 1938, The Holy Shroud of Turin, Science, Archaeology, History, Iconography, Logic. In his book, Vignon suggests that the shroud was responsible for a marked shift in visual representations of Christ. In the first three centuries after the crucifixion, Jesus is illustrated as a clean-shaven youth. Around the time of Constantine, emperor of Rome between 306 and 337 CE, Jesus began to be represented with a mustache and beard, like the image in the shroud. There's even a small square above the bridge of the nose on the face in the shroud, caused by an imperfection in the weave of the cloth. But this square is recreated on the face of Jesus in numerous paintings. Regardless of whether the shroud is authentic or not, it clearly had an impact on Christianity. We don't know for certain where the Shroud of Turin was during this period between 306 and 337 CE. The art history that Vignon presents in his book suggests that the shroud was still being worshipped during that time, and that reverence filtered down into the art of the period. Another French syndenologist present with Secondopia and Paul Vignon at the shroud's 1931 exhibition for scientists was surgeon and anatomist Pierre Barbet. Barbet was so convinced of the shroud's validity that he spontaneously dropped to his knees while viewing it. He was overcome with the belief that he was looking at the actual blood and suffering of Christ. Barbet wrote, I saw that all the images of the wounds were of a color quite different from that of the rest of the body, and this color was that of dried blood which had sunk into the stuff. There was, thus, more than the brown stains on the shroud reproducing the outline of the corpse. The blood itself had colored the stuff by direct contact. Barbet was fascinated with the shroud, and like Vignon, he used different methods to attempt recreating it. Since Barbet was a surgeon at the Paris Saint-Joseph Hospital, he had plenty of access to cadavers for his experiments. 
First, Barbet considered the wounds on the wrists and hands. The front imprint on the shroud showed a nail being driven through the wrist, but the back imprint showed the nail exiting through the hand. This felt like it could have been a forger's miscalculation, but when Barbet nailed a cadaver's wrist, the nail pulled through the back of the hand when weight was applied. It appeared the shroud actually portrayed authentic crucifixion wounds. Nails had to be driven through the wrists so the weight of the body would be borne on the bone. Nails driven through the hands were not sufficient. When body weight was applied, the hands would tear apart. Barbet also noted that the shroud showed wounds to the wrists in two positions. He speculated that a suffering crucified man would alternate between bearing his weight on his feet and on his hands. And when he became exhausted, the sudden drop of body weight on his wrists would rip the wounds larger. Vignon and Barbet's discoveries are remarkable, considering that they were only able to consult photographic negatives and attempt to recreate the circumstances that generated the shroud. They both were able to examine the shroud itself, but only for a short time. But the scientific exploration of the shroud would change yet again in 1969, when Catholic authorities finally allowed the Shroud of Turin to be directly tested and the results weren't always so favorable to the faithful. Next, we'll discuss the most recent history of the Shroud and how the mystery is considered by religious scholars and scientists today. Now the conclusion of our unexplained mystery. We've discussed how Secondo Pia's photographs of the Shroud ushered the relic into a new era, the era of science. But for most of the 20th century, scientists didn't have access to the relic itself. Without the ability to test the shroud directly, science was limited in what it could analyze. But that all changed in 1973, when scientists were finally allowed to remove samples from the shroud. Of course, the church needed a little push to grant this new level of access to the priceless relic. That pressure came in the form of a 10-year-old girl named Josephine Woolham. In part one, we discussed Leonard Cheshire, a British soldier who sang the Shroud's praises all over Britain. In 1955, his news reached Josephine, who suffered from a painful bone infection that left her unable to walk. The press reported that Josephine begged her parents to help her make the pilgrimage to the Shroud. Josephine implored them, I'm suffering like Jesus, aren't I? If I am blessed with a relic, I know I will get well. The Catholic Church had not granted permission for any kind of ceremony to take place. But by the time Josephine arrived in Turin, her story had caught the attention of the media. Josephine was able to convince the priests and cardinals to remove the shroud from its reliquary and place it against her disabled legs. After several reverent moments, there was no change in her condition. When the Shroud very publicly failed to deliver a significant miracle on command for Josephine, it renewed doubts about the relic's authenticity. Cardinal Michela Pellegrino, one of the Shroud's caretakers, felt the pressure to buttress the Shroud's reputation. 
So in June 1969, the shroud was secretly made available to a select group of scientists for three days, the longest examination of the shroud in recorded history. The scientists were allowed to discuss, photograph, and examine the shroud, but none of them were allowed to take any samples from the shroud, and they were not allowed to test it directly. Therefore, unsurprisingly, no significant conclusions resulted. The scientists needed to be able to perform more extensive tests. In 1973, Cardinal Pellegrino again assembled a select group of scientists, and this time he allowed four very tiny samples to be removed. In addition, Dr. Max Frey, a Swiss criminologist, took samples of the dust on the shroud by pressing sticky tape onto the shroud's surface, collecting microscopic particles. Examination of the particles under a microscope showed that the dust was comprised of pollen as well as mineral particles. Frey happened to be an expert on pollen and identified 49 individual pollen grains from the shroud. Some of the pollen came from plants found only in the Jordan Valley, where they had adapted to survive in the salty soil. Other plants originated in Jerusalem, Istanbul, Urfa, France, and Italy. This discovery seemed to verify the Shroud's unconfirmed history before 1353, when it came into the possession of the Ducharny family. The pollen suggested that the Shroud had indeed spent time in the Middle East before coming to France. It also refuted the possibility that the Shroud was a medieval forgery. A fake created during the Middle Ages in Europe wouldn't have pollen from the Middle East on its surface. Encouraged by Frey's findings, the Shroud's custodians were amenable to additional testing. In 1978, the Shroud of Turin research project was allowed five days of continuous access to the Shroud. The team was composed of experts in a variety of scientific fields from venerable institutions all over the world. They used every minute of their 120 hours, working around the clock in shifts. Their final analysis was delivered three years later in 1981. The group concluded that the shroud contained no artificial pigments. It was not the work of an artist. Their tests confirmed that the bloodstains contained hemoglobin and that the shroud's contact with a body excreting blood explained some features of the image, like the outline of the torso. Their work decisively showed that the shroud came from a human person. It had not been manufactured using other materials. But blood wasn't the only thing at work here. Their report specified that although contact with a bloodied abdomen might explain some of the features of the torso, it is totally incapable of explaining the image of the face with the high resolution that has been amply demonstrated by photography. Although the Shroud of Turin research project was able to draw some specific conclusions, they had to admit they still could not explain how the Shroud came to be. They would make progress on a chemical solution, but find it was negated by the laws of physics, or vice versa. Their frustration is palpable in their press release, which states, For an adequate explanation for the image of the shroud, 
one must have an explanation which is scientifically sound from a physical, chemical, biological, and medical viewpoint. At the present, this type of solution does not appear to be obtainable by the best efforts of the members of the Shroud team. In addition to admitting the failure of scientific tests to reveal the Shroud's origin, the team also pointed out that no adequate recreations of the Shroud yet existed, writing, Experiments in physics and chemistry with old linen have failed to reproduce adequately the phenomenon presented by the Shroud of Turin. No chemical or physical methods are known which can account for the totality of the image, nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. It must have been a big disappointment to Cardinal Pellegrino and the other Shroud custodians. They had opened the Shroud up to scientific examination, and it had produced only lukewarm results. The answer to the question of how the image was produced or what produced the image remained a mystery. But a big blow to believers in the Shroud was yet to come. In 1988, samples taken from different parts of the Shroud were sent to three separate, widely respected labs for carbon dating. The University of Oxford's Radiocarbon Accelerator Unit, the University of Arizona, and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. All the labs came up with the same result. The cloth from the shroud dated between 1260 and 1390 CE. All the labs reported their estimate as reliable to 95%. The date window perfectly corresponds with the first documented sighting of the shroud in 1353. The conclusion from the results seemed unavoidable. The shroud is a forgery from medieval times. Just like that, there appeared to be hard proof that the venerated Shroud of Turin had never actually been in contact with Jesus Christ. But believers argued that the shroud was not properly preserved for centuries. The dating could have been the result of medieval fabric used to repair the shroud, or contamination from before the shroud was preserved. For two decades, this theory was considered a reach by the academic community, and the mystery of the Shroud of Turin was considered closed. But in 2010, the carbon dating results were credibly challenged. Statistician Marco Riani dug into the raw data presented by the three labs and found that the labs had agreed on the very specific age of the control fabrics tested, cloth from an Egyptian mummy, a medieval Nubian burial shroud, and a medieval French clerical vestment. But their results on the shroud varied by more than 150 years, depending on which part of the shroud was tested. The results reported were the mean of all the data collected by the labs. When Riani looked at the separate data from each piece of cloth, he found something remarkable. He said, the dating which comes from a piece at the top edge of the uncut sample is very different from the date which comes from a piece taken from the bottom edge. Riani is cautious, saying his findings don't prove that the shroud is authentic, 
but they do call into question the seemingly bulletproof carbon dating that appeared to prove the shroud was medieval. The next scientist to take on the shroud, physicist Paolo Di Lazzaro, tackled what he liked to call the question of questions. How was the shroud produced? Every effort to recreate the shroud's image had failed. Particularly puzzling was the very minimal penetration of the image into the fabric. The shroud itself is already unfathomably thin, less than one three thousandth of an inch. And yet somehow the image penetrates less than 0.7 micrometers, one thirtieth the diameter of fiber in the shroud. The image is not visible on both sides of the shroud. In 2005, Di Lazzaro and his team at Italy's National Agency for New Technologies, Energy and Sustainable Economic Development embarked on five years of experiments to recreate the image seen on the shroud. They used cutting-edge excimer lasers to expose raw linen to quick bursts of UV light. In 2011, the team published results that appeared eerily similar to the shroud in color, but they could not reproduce a three-dimensional human image. De Lazaro reports that creating a human image would require more than the maximum energy released by all ultraviolet light sources available today. De Lazaro estimates the intensity would have to be several billion watts. If the most state-of-the-art technology available today can generate the same effect, how could a medieval forger have created the shroud? Some believers see De Lazaro's work as evidence of Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead in his tomb, some kind of divine ultraviolet light seared the image of his crucified body onto the shroud. The Catholic Church has not officially backed this or any theory, but they do encourage the faithful to view the shroud when it's on display and continue to support additional testing. As Pope John Paul II put it in 1998, the Church entrusts to scientists the task of continuing to investigate. The more cynical skeptics hint that the church prefers an ongoing limbo where the shroud is continuously investigated. As long as there's new information, interest in the shroud will remain relevant, driving pilgrims and money to St. John the Baptist Cathedral in Turin. And the debate does continue to rage. About a year ago, in June 2018, the Journal of Forensic Science published a study done by a forensic scientist that used a live volunteer to simulate the bleeding patterns that would have resulted from Jesus' wounds. A volunteer performed the macabre task of laying between a long folded piece of linen simulating a burial shroud. A narrow tube was inserted into their wrist in order to approximate the bleeding from Jesus' wrists after he was removed from the cross. Since a recreation of Jesus' lance wound would be lethal, a mannequin was used for that. After the blood was on the linen, a ballistic angle finder was used to perform blood pattern analysis. The analysis concluded that the blood in their recreation did not flow in the same way as blood on the shroud. The study read, when the volunteer was in various reclining positions, the blood movement never matched the shroud. 
Assuming that the red stains on the Turin linen are actually blood from the crucifixion wounds, the results of the experiments demonstrate that the alleged flowing patterns from different areas of the body are not consistent with each other. The Shroud of Turin remains controversial among religious skeptics and believers. Nathan Wilson, a researcher, professor, and amateur syndenologist, told the AP about the frustrations of interpreting the research on the Shroud. The problem with the Shroud community and the Shroud world and trying to find Shroud data is that you can find a peer-reviewed journal article to contradict every other peer-reviewed journal article. There's so much dispute about what is the Shroud. Is there human blood? There's peer-reviewed articles saying it's type AB, and there's peer-reviewed articles saying that it's red ochre. Perhaps opinions on the Shroud remain so contradictory because of the Christian population's emotional link to the relic. The Shroud of Turin is one of the oldest and most venerated Christian artifacts in the world. Authentic or not, it is significant to 2.18 billion people, nearly one-third of Earth's population. When Paul Vignon first embarked on his research into the Shroud back in 1900, he vowed to remain impartial and not to allow his Catholic faith to affect his conclusions. He wrote, For us, the Shroud is simply a large piece of linen, discolored by time, worn and torn in places, half burnt by fire, bearing upon its surface shadowy impressions. And yet, nearly all of Vignon's conclusions reinforced the Shroud's validity. In the end, it might be impossible to separate our own emotional reaction to the Shroud from our conclusions about it. Pope Benedict XVI touched on this reality in the Mass he delivered in front of the Shroud in 2010. If you don't speak Italian, Pope Benedict is telling the faithful gathered before him that the Holy Shroud represents a mirror of our own pain, reflecting on the pain of Christ. That representation was created by the faithful who have venerated the Shroud for centuries, proving that our suffering and faith is real enough whether the shroud is genuine or not. There is no evidence yet decisively proving that the shroud of Turin is the actual burial shroud of Jesus Christ. However, the most potent evidence indicating that the shroud is a fake has also been undermined. Logically, it should be easier to prove that the shroud is a fake than to prove it is real. And until evidence exists to show the shroud is forged, it will continue to be very real for thousands of pilgrims who visit Turin every year. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. You can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. 
Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 